Available on all podcast platforms. This is the Psychology Cast, the podcast that interviews unique individuals on why they do what they do. Hi, welcome to Psychology Cast. Today I'm joined by a very fabulous guest, Dr. Helen Driscoll. Um, you might have like come across lots of different conversations. This one I think is going to be a particularly interesting one, like they always are. Helen is currently an academic director for educational partnerships. So it's a new role. We're going to talk about that role and what that what she does at the moment. Um, but actually, she is um, actually someone that um, I found quite uh, interesting and is someone that I worked with because she graduated from Newcastle University in 2001 with the first class honours and the Mary McKinn Prize. She completed a PhD at Durham University and has, and has experience in teaching in several Northeast universities in the UK. By background, she's an evolution psychologist and her research interests include sexuality and sexual behavior, dark personality, adult play, which is related to current, uh, which is related to a current project on reborn dolls and higher education pedagogy, which includes um, interprofessional inter learning. She also has significant experience of program design and development and of higher education quality assurance and enhancement. So you can see like from her um, description about who she is, lots of complex things and lots of interesting work that she does. So um, I would like to welcome Helen to the show. Um, how are you, Helen? Welcome to the show. I'm good, thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice hot sunny day at home in Newcastle today. So all good. Have you always been in New like in the part of the northeast? Is that where you're from? Is that it, it is? Yeah, from? yeah. So my parents are from County Durham. So I grew up in a pit village in, in County Durham, um, a little place called Fishburns near Sedgefield. For anyone who knows the area, so um, yeah, I, I grew up in in the northeast. It was a kind of sort of semi-rural pit village, um, and my parents' families are very much rooted in, in the region. Um, I was the first in, in my family to go to university. So um, I moved to Newcastle when I went to university. So I went to um, what was then University of Newcastle upon Tyne, now Newcastle University, to study psychology. And at the time, I guess that felt a bit like moving to a big city, even though I look at it now and think it's actually quite a small city. Um, but for me at the time, it, it was quite a big move. So, yeah, I've, I've lived in Newcastle ever since, even though I work at University of Sunderland. Um, the reason being really that my, my kids are or have been, my youngest one is still at school um, in Newcastle. So I've kind of stayed put uh, for them. But uh, I would consider moving to Sunderland at some point in the future it's it's also a really nice place to live be nice not to have the commute so much <laughs> oh, yeah absolutely like sometimes we think to ourselves like um are we you know about travel and like, where do we end up i suppose the first part of the conversation we're talking about that journey like you know how did you come into that place how did you even do we're going to talk about being what it's like being um the first like first generation student um because some of the people who might be listening might be considering breaking out of like norms and going to university at the same time. Yeah. And how, what do you do in your current role? We'll have that conversation a bit later. Yeah. 
Sure. So I think like the first question I've got like is, did you ever think that you'd ever become a psychologist? When did you think like you'd become a psychologist? Like when did when was that realization for you? And I think about my journey when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Never did I think that I'd be a psychologist. Like it was not even on the card. So I'm just thinking, when do you think that was? When did you first think? Do you know what I might be a psychologist one day, or I'd like to be a psychologist? Yeah, well, it, it, it's similar for me actually. So the short answer is, while I was doing my A levels, probably is is the time when when I thought that even though I didn't do A level psychology, which is a typical route for lots of undergrad psychology students, many of them have got absolutely no history in psychology whatsoever. Um, so how did I get there? That's quite difficult to answer. So as a as a kid. Um, I had lots of cousins on my dad's side and my granddad always kind of seemed to think of me as as the kind of in quotes clever one you know he he always said I was always that kid with my head in a book everywhere I went I had my head in a book and he used to say to my mum and dad oh Helen's going to be a teacher because he thought that's what that's what clever people did they went on to be teachers um I, I can't say that at the time that's something I really thought about um I had lots of ideas I suppose I grew up watching Neighbours and uh, Charlene being a car mechanic and my uncle who I spent a lot of time with when I was younger was a part-time mechanic um and he had a pit in his garage and when I was a kid I used to go down there um it's kind of underground under the cars with him and, and learn about that so I learned a huge amount about cars and that's something that I actually thought of doing even though I was quite academically oriented my mum I think she felt she always felt in some way I don't know if hard done by is the right word but that she'd missed out because she couldn't go to university so she was very academically able but her family couldn't really afford for her to go to university she did really well at school um, but she had to leave and get a job and she actually did want to be a teacher and that was never an option for her she had to take a, a clerical job as did my dad, he was he was head wayman at, at the coke works in the village um, where we lived. They both worked at, at the pit, not as miners, but in the offices um, before that closed. Um, so they were both able at school, but had never really had the opportunity to um, pursue anything academic. And for my mom, that was something that was really difficult for her, I think. So she always wanted that for me and I was an only child. So I felt quite a lot of pressure, you know, to, to do well academically from her, not from my dad. He was quite happy for me, you know, just be happy, do what you want kind of thing. Um, but I felt a little bit, you know, that she wanted to live that out through me with the best intentions. Um, luckily, I suppose I, I, I loved I loved academic stuff. I wouldn't say I loved school. Um, uh, I didn't always have the best experience at school, and I, in my teens, I didn't go to school very much because I was actually really ill for a lot of years, and uh, I spent a lot of years really entirely in my bedroom. Had a bit of home tuition, which was good, but mostly what I learned in that time was how to be an independent learner. I had to do it myself, so I did. Um, and I remember a time, you know, doing my A-levels and school at the time wasn't like it is now and doing A-level biology and sometimes not actually being taught anything of, of the syllabus in certain aspects of it. And so I got the syllabus and I learned it myself and I got the book. So I was quite good at that. I considered medicine um, for a long time. I, I really liked the idea of being a medical doctor. And sometimes I still sort of wonder about, you know, that as an option because I, I, I do relate well to people, although that's obviously a, a benefit in psychology. I do enjoy helping people and that feeling that, you know, you've, 
you've done something for someone or with someone and that, that it's helped them in some way. But I guess, you know, I didn't really like chemistry, if I'm honest, and uh, A-level maths was not the easiest thing I've ever done. Um, I ended up dropping chemistry. And if I'm honest, in terms of my look, and this is where some of the tension laid for me, my love of subjects was in the arts, not the creative arts, I'm no good at that. Um, but English literature was my greatest love. Um, I got an A star at GCSE and I, I got an A in A level. And I absolutely loved that. I loved dissecting the text and taking them apart. All my books were written all over. Um, so that was kind of my great love and kind of classic English literature. So from a purely academic point of view, I suppose that's what I really would have wanted to do, to pursue that. And, you know, I think we hear a lot now about the arts and about English subjects and discouragement for those, which is a real shame, because often they actually do lead to really good careers. But at the time, I wasn't really thinking so much about what do I want to do? I was thinking, what do I enjoy? But I knew at some point I had to do something and, and get a job and earn some money. And I guess the messages I got were that, you know, if you do English literature, you can go into teaching and that's about it. And I didn't see myself as a, a secondary school teacher or a primary school teacher. I don't know why, but that, that just didn't really um, appeal to me. So I didn't do English literature at university. I did some modules in it as electives. So I had to think, well, what am I going to do then? You know, I want to do English perhaps, but... I'm kind of being discouraged from that, which I think was potentially wrong, you know, in terms of the messages that I got. Um, I could see myself doing medicine, but the subjects that you needed to get there, I didn't thrive on. Um, so I did a mixture of A-levels in sort of arts and sciences. I did um, English, biology, um, maths and history. So I did kind of a, a range of sort of science and arts subjects. Um, and I started to think about psychology. And I didn't know anything about it because I'd not studied it. It wasn't an offer at my school, so I couldn't. But I guess my interest in it came from um, want, wanting to understand people, which is the motive from most psychology students, I think. But particularly, um, it was rooted in my childhood um, because my uncle, who I've mentioned already, he was the, the part-time car mechanic. He was my mom's brother. Um, and when I was five, he was... Well, he, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the time. What I was told was that he'd had what they called at the time a nervous breakdown. Um, he lived with my grandma. Um, he was my mom's only brother and her sister had died. I spent a lot of time with him. He was as big a figure in my childhood as my dad, but a very different figure. Um, uh, I saw him every single day. You know, even before he had his, in quotes, breakdown, he, he, he was at work, he was a, a forklift driver. And when he came in, you know, I saw him every day, saw him at weekends. We did a lot of stuff together, you know, in the garage in the evenings, going out in the car, playing games. And I also always knew he was different. He wasn't like other adults, you know, he was an equal to me. Um, nothing was off the cards in terms of, you know, what we could talk about, etc. Um, so he was a really important figure in my life. And to me, I guess... I guess me to him, I was a little bit like his daughter. He didn't have his own children. I was his only niece um, and, and he adored me. And, you know, I remember Christmases when I was about two and um, he brought me this great big rag doll that was bigger than me. And I called her Raggedy Ann. He built a swing for me in his garden, you know, so some brilliant memories of those early days, but everything changed 
when I was five and no one would explain it to me. They just said, you know, you'll understand when you get older, but, you know, he's not going to be like he was. And I, he, he was different. You know, I couldn't relate to him in the same way. He was unpredictable and, and sometimes violent. And it progressed, you know, throughout my childhood. It, it, it was such a big factor in my childhood. Um, they could never decide in the end, was he schizophrenic? Was it manic depressive psychosis, as they called it at the time? They could never fully decide, um, but it destroyed his life and it, you know, really destroyed our lives to a point. He became an alcoholic. He was quite violent. He had, you know, extreme paranoid delusions. He was often um, institutionalized um, in the local psychiatric hospital, which is no longer there. Um, Winterton so I spent quite a lot of time going to see him in psychiatric hospitals and seeing you know the range of things um, that people were in psychiatric hospitals experiencing. Um, I was frightened of him at times you know there was a time when he thought myself and my mom and my grandma were imposters and he physically attacked us he pen penned us in the kitchen I ended up having to escape through a window so quite a lot of trauma I suppose involved. Um, and he died a few years ago um, because he'd smoked about 80 a day for years, trying to cope with everything that was going on. Um, he'd been an alcoholic for quite a long time, although at one point he did stop drinking eventually. But um, yeah, he died in his early 60s. Um, it was a really sad death. He had a heart attack or heart failure. And my mom found him, you know, slumped behind the door. So my motivation for psychology was not really so much about understanding myself, which I think is a lot of people's motivation. It was wanting to understand that, you know, what had happened to him that was so extreme. How could we explain this and how could we help people? Because I could never see a way to help him. Um, there was no way to kind of talk him out of these beliefs that he held that the TV was watching him. There were people in the loft, um, all of these sorts of things. Everyone was talking about him. So yeah, I went into psychology thinking, I'm gonna be a clinical psychologist and help people like him. But here I am, not a clinical psychologist. Yeah. I, I think it's you know, fascinating. I could, I could just, I was, I was getting lost in my thoughts um, when you were describing many different experiences and also um, this ultimate experience that shaped your decision or had a massive influence um, in your decision to study this discipline. Uh, this topic in this or this disciplines area um because there's similar parallels in that sense like as, as i mentioned before and on the on the show that yeah. my family had mental health problems yeah. and it's that same kind of like thought process around i wanted i done this thing to help them yeah. um and so you're, you're it's not like a personal thing like you, know, you did it for yourself yeah. but i think um like you, you know you have this experience with him like and you have, you know, like when you were five or up until that age, and then, then you have this other experience. So you're still, you've got two experiences with them and two versions. You're trying to, both the brain is trying to like, I don't know, understand yeah. like which one are, which one are you holding on to or which one are, do you go with? But it's like forming into one, isn't it? It is, it, it's, it is, and they are such different experiences, because as I said, he, he did, I, I did always know in some sense that he was very different, there was clearly, there'd always been something, and I, as a child, I didn't have the words or the knowledge to know what it was, I just knew he was not like other adults, and he was different, um, but there was nothing, you know, extreme until, until I was about five, it all, 
I don't know it's like two people I suppose when I look back on my own life I look back at my teenage years when I was ill and I think that's another person that didn't happen to me even though I know it did it it's almost it wasn't me and it's the same with him you know I look back on the early years and all of those really good memories really really good memories um you know the time we spent together um in the way that I look back on memories with my dad because I had you know my my dad's one of the best people I know and um the memories I had with him were, were awesome as well but very different um and much more I guess conventional you know the kind of games my uncle John used to play were probably sometimes a little bit unconventional and sort of uh um role play type things and um quite imaginative and used to draw cartoons and all sorts of things um so yeah it's it, it's like looking back on two different people those really good memories and then the memories from after you know he started with whatever we want to call it schizophrenia or whatever um and the memories from then are, you know almost completely awful really um their memories of fear and violence um, and to some extent trauma, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I, I think back on both quite a lot. Uh, you know, I was looking at a picture a couple of weeks ago of me sitting on his knee when I was about three with a Christmas tree next to us and he was laughing away and remembered, you know, the times that, that were really good. Um, yeah, so I, I guess one of the memories that sticks with me <coughs> I guess one of the memories that sticks with me is um, when he actually died, you know, and I, I went to see, see him after that and I'd never seen that before. And I won't go into it in detail because it probably sounds too morbid, but um, yeah, that, that sticks with me, you know, that sort of all of those years lost you know, because he, he wasn't an academic type. He wasn't like my mom, he was the literal opposite. Even before he was ill, he was impulsive and a bit reckless. Um, and he wanted to have fun and she's the complete opposite of that. She's incredibly, you know, risk averse and conservative and careful. Um, but yeah, I think about all those years lost, which is typical of people who suffer psychiatric illness. We think about it as, you know, an illness which is to do with the mind, which of course it is. What we don't always think about is the impact that can have on physical health and the impact it had on him was the damage he did to his body because what he was trying to do with all the drinking and the smoking, he was trying to cope with this, you know, he couldn't cope with what was going on in his head. And so he turned to that to try and cope and he became an alcoholic and he damaged his liver, he had cognitive impairment, uh, he destroyed his lungs and his heart. He, I remember at one point, um, when I was at university, he was in Northeast Hospital with double pneumonia um, from all of the smoking. And I went to see him in intensive care and he was conscious at that point, he'd been on a ventilator and actually come off it, which I believe is probably quite uncommon. Um, and he just kept saying to me, Helen, am I gonna die? And I said, no, but I wasn't sure. And I don't know how he got over it, but he lived maybe another three years. Anyway, he came home and ripped the nicotine patches off and started smoking again. Um, so yeah, I, th I think about all that, the wasted years of his life, you know, because he was a very capable man and his life was destroyed by this, but also that early death, um, you know, psychiatric illness can really take 
decades off people's lives and it did for him because he was an incredibly physically strong man you know we used to say he's as strong as an ox and we don't know how he survived as long as he did given that the abuse his body had but he kept going for a long time yeah well this is it isn't it so basically because at the other day we should see human beings um, rather than being a patient or person with this condition because humans with under stress or anything they will react in the way as everyone else does they will de-stress or yeah. you know relieve themselves or like self-medicate in this case yeah. and we all do it and we shouldn't see the, you know people with health conditions as some sort of like alien group they belong to like they're doing something different to what we would do um and as a result like we we have to think you know of of, of nature in that sense like if you take certain things to your body naturally it's gonna it's gonna harm it over, over, over time anyone you know um, and I think about like, you know, um, my family members in terms of like the medication they were like, you know, I know what it's doing to them, I think, because we don't have any other answers. Yeah, so exactly. we're stuck. And that's why we have to. I think that's the reason why we pulled us in this area to we must study this thing. Yeah. What, what's causing all this? What can we do? Goes back to the helping and aiding. And I think that's that's what's pushing people like us or people like yourself in this in this field to say, look, um, their experiences are telling us a story. Yeah. And maybe it's that creative art thing coming along and telling us something that we need to be observant as scientists um, or social scientists. And we have to record, we have to document and, and then formulate or come up with ways to at least discuss it, debate. Um, so when do you think like, when did you start thinking like a scientist then? Like, so you start seeing him as a person. Yeah. Like, when was um, not, not until I studied psychology, to be honest. And like yeah. many psychology undergraduates, I don't think I really understood what psychology is. Um, I think a lot of people go into it thinking it's all about, you know, that it's more like counselling perhaps, which it isn't. Um, I don't think I thought that. I think I had more of a sense of what it was than that. But I, I guess I wasn't fully prepared for how scientific it, it is as a discipline. Um, so I guess it was, you know, I went to Newcastle University to study psychology and we did an introductory module which covered all of the core areas and we did research methods. Uh, and the first thing we did was social psychology. We had a block on that. And I remember learning about, you know, kind of group processes and social influence. And the first thing we studied was altruism. Um, and the, the idea of whether there's true altruism. And we learned about all these classic experiments yeah. in social psychology and they were experiments. And, you know, we talked about the scientific method. Um, so I guess that that's when I really, although I'd studied A-level biology, I guess I, I wasn't taught in that, you know, the kind of philosophy of science or the principles of science or anything like that. So it was really my first year at university when I started um, really thinking about, you know, what, what is a science and how do we use science to find out about things um, in a way that we can trust, yeah. Because yeah, for me, with science, how I, because like I said, I wasn't like too great at chemistry and, you know, science is in, in, the, in the more conventional sense in, in secondary education. Um, so I always then I thought about like cause and effect and that's mm. what scientists are concerned with like yeah. well if that if you're if you have that mind or if you have that you know curiosity 
what's causing that? As soon as you have that question, I think you're thinking like a scientist, yeah. like what's you're looking at there and for. So when 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 do you think it happened for you then? Like were you always curious, I suppose, as a child? Like when yeah. did you first think, why did that happen? Like in general, like when do you when do you think that happens at like when you were really when you are infants or or when you're a toddler or you know when you're in junior school? When did you think yeah. I wonder what's causing that? I think that's always been there but for me it was very much rooted in people and mm. and behavior and even though I knew nothing about psychology and I wouldn't have known to call it psychology at the time yeah. um you know my my partner's an engineer and I guess from what he describes about his childhood about carrying around bags of wires and things like that um and putting them to putting things together and you know seeing how things work um it was never that for me um, I had some, I guess, some curiosity, you know, about, I've spoken about my interest in cars, et cetera. If I'm honest, I, I think my interest was more in, you know, the models and types and things rather than how they actually work, even though I was exposed to that. But for me, it was people. Um, and I guess that's where the interest in English literature lies, because ultimately it's about understanding people, isn't it? And I think that a lot of psychology can easily be applied to understanding English literature because really a lot of what we're trying to do is understand people in terms of characters and understanding their motives and why they do the things that they do. Um, and I studied a bit of English literature in my first year at, at university. And I found that the psychology that was applied was very old, you know, even to the point of Freudian. And actually we can apply modern psychology to understanding literature and film quite effectively and evolutionary models, for example, understanding of individual differences, developmental psychology, all of these sorts of things. But yeah, for me, it was always about people. I'm madly curious about people. Um, I'm always interested in people. I love just watching them, um, listening to them, proper people watcher, I think. Um, uh, a few weeks ago I was on a bus and there was this couple having an argument and I was almost sad when I got off that I couldn't um, find out what exactly had gone on and it was all about so I guess you could call me nosy about people but I just have an in inherent curiosity uh, about personality very much you know I love tv shows that are kind of character studies Mad Men is one of my favorite tv shows and the character of Donald Draper is seven series really and really you know it's that the premise of it doesn't sound that compelling, but when you watch it, it's the character, it's that character study and really kind of getting under someone's skin. And it's driven a lot of my interest in psychology. You know, I really always had a strong interest in dark personality and psychopathy. And I guess it's because it's quite difficult to understand how the mind of a psychopath might differ. And it's a compelling thing to, to get inside the mind like that and to try and kind of imagine what that must be like to have those traits, um, to understand what's underlying it, how they think and feel and why they do the things they do. That's my curiosity. What do you think um, like your school teachers would say, knowing what you're doing now? <laughs> I think I know because my mum keeps telling me she sees she she my mum's um um a fairly staunch Catholic I had a, a Catholic upbringing which is an interesting thing in itself and she sees a lot of my teachers at, at church still so she's she tells them what I'm doing and uh, she tells me one of them said I was a star pupil I think because she was my English teacher and I was good at English um so yeah the, I went to school in in Peter Lee um, I chose to go to, to that school. As I said, you know, I didn't go to school that much because 
I was quite ill, but um, when it got to A level, I, I did, and I, I also did a bit more at New College in Durham. Um, so yeah, I think you know, I think they're proud of me. What they like to know is like we we like to know, you know, in in our lecturing careers, we really like to see our students do well. Um, when you've taught someone and you've invested in them and believed in them, as, as we often do as academics, it's really nice to see when when they do well. I guess. Yeah, and they yeah. seem to think that I've done well, so I'll take that. That, that was going to be my second sort of like question on that. Like, what does your mom say about you now? Like, you know, now that you've like um, developed and progressed into this, you know, path. Um, how, how does she? How does she? Yeah, I'm sure you have those reflective conversations with her. But what's her thoughts of you now? Yeah, she's she's incredibly proud of me. I think um, because I suppose you know she always wanted me to go to university because she couldn't, I, th I don't think that's the only reason she wanted the best for me, obviously, but she thought that was the best thing for me. And luckily, you know, I, I didn't rebel against that because I did want to go, um, might have rebelled about other things, but that one, you know, was something that, that I did want. Um, so yeah, she's, she's incredibly proud of me. She, in terms of the job I have now, she said she has to write down the titles and she keeps practicing it so she can tell people what it is. Um, so yeah, yeah, she, she's very proud of me. Um, she, I, I guess the job I've got now is, a, you know, it's a new role and it's something that, a, a job that probably wouldn't have existed 10 years ago. So I'm not sure that she fully understands what it is, although I've, I've tried to explain it. Um, in terms of my psychology career, you know, I've, I've gone, um, in terms of my interests, I've focused very much on evolutionary psychology. My PhD was in evolutionary psychology. And in some ways, that's a reaction to a Catholic upbringing, I guess, the fact that when I was at university, it was a stage three evolutionary psychology option that really, to me, went, that is, that is the thing for you. Um, that's what really makes sense. And I'd gone into my degree thinking I would be a clinical psychologist. Within a year, I thought that isn't for me. Um, I did a module in it at third year and I did really well at university. That was a module I didn't do quite as well in, I think, because I largely disagreed with a lot of what was taught and I argued against it. And I suppose, you know, it's not that I don't believe in clinical psychology because I do. And I think that clinical psychologists do some amazing work and really important. But I'd grown up, you know, watching the most extreme mental illness. Um, seeing someone struggle so much and I truly believe that although all of the stuff that went around the psychiatric care was important it was only drugs that worked and of course the, you know as you've touched on in what you were talking about there are downsides of course there are and I could see that I saw some of the side effects um, some of the effects it had on him um, but there was no other kind of therapy that was going to really have a, a big impact on him. Um, and a big part of the problem was he wouldn't comply with, with the drugs uh, and he ended up having to have injections, etc. But, you know, we saw how bad he was without them versus how he was with them, which still wasn't great, but it was a whole lot better than without them. So I guess I don't know that there was a part of me that felt I didn't in my heart believe in it enough to, to practice it. So it was evolutionary psychology that grabbed me and I kind of accidentally fell into being an academic, I, I think, with that, yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of my mum, I suppose the evolutionary stuff maybe doesn't um, gel with her. I, I've not gone into it in detail with her. I don't necessarily think it's counter to, you know, religious belief, 
um, at all, but it's certainly often perceived in that way and can be a challenge around that, I suppose. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's really helpful and helpful for the listeners um, because it, it will give them some idea that some of our, um, you know, our, our dial, personal dial hasn't changed, like it doesn't move and we're just central and yeah. we're influenced by lots of um, the environment around us, but also our lived experience. Um, particularly around when you see someone that you care about go through a lot of pain and a lot of like misery and you know it's sometimes if you do feel like it's unnecessary what can I do to help you feel helpless uh, so I can relate in that terms of like you wanted to um, you know you moved in a different area that influenced your decision to move into evolution psychology um, and I think that's the reason why I'm in, in health like in preventative like sort of perspective so I have that sort of mind how do we how do we stop that person getting there in the first place yeah. what do? because I know like I don't want anybody else to go through it um but I did want to ask like this other question around actually we might have time in the second part of the of the interview um but this question was around in terms of like your own like when you saw all this stuff happening um because I know that I couldn't I, I couldn't help the situation like even today it's very frustrating I don't know how yeah. you found, found that with him despite all you knew like you, you did you ever feel helpless and what did you do with that? yeah incredibly helpless so it really affected my relationship with my mom and with my grandma because you know as I mentioned my uncle lived with my grandma he, he was a, a youngest child um she had my mom and then her younger sister who died when she was 12. Um, and then my uncle Johnny was 10, 10 years younger than my mum. And my mum had looked after him his entire life because her sister died of a brain tumour and her mum was a nurse or had been and was spending all her time looking after her sister. So she basically had to bring him up, but he went everywhere with her. Um, and the, the thing I found hard as a child and looking back on it now, I regret this a lot, but you look, through, look at it through a different lens as you get older and more experienced. I felt, you know, that I was living through all this pain and fear all the time, a constant kind of fear of violence. Was he going to come down to our house? What was he going to do? Would he be drunk, etc.? And I, I was really frightened of that. And my mom never seemed to be in some way. And my grandma wouldn't, she wouldn't leave. You know, she insisted on staying in the house with him, even though some nights she was in a bedroom and she, she had to board the door so he, he couldn't get in, you know, when he was drunk. And sometimes she'd come and stay with us because he got drunk and hit her and stuff. He thought she was an imposter or something like that. And I guess I blamed them because they wouldn't, she wouldn't move out. You know, she wouldn't, she could have got a bungalow or something. And we talked about that. She never would, always went back. She said she'd do it, always went back. And my mom, you know, I saw him once um, attack her quite badly when, you know, he, he was, he was struggling with some delusion about us being imposters, I guess. And I felt helpless because I couldn't get them to see that I couldn't cope with this, I think. Um, because I don't think they felt the fear that I felt. Um, and I'm not sure why, I guess I was a child. So I felt helpless about that. Um, and I felt helpless that I couldn't help him. I didn't always know how to relate to him. Um, I felt a lot of conflict because I was angry sometimes. I felt angry with him sometimes. I didn't want to be around him sometimes. I found it really difficult as I got older. Um, 
and I just didn't know what to do. You know, I felt like there was nothing that, that I could do to change that situation. I couldn't get away from it until I went to university, but I couldn't help him either. I couldn't do anything. And so, yeah, I think there is a lot of a feeling of helplessness there. Uh, and maybe that was in some way underlying my desire to understand it better and, and go to university and study psychology and study, you know, what are the causes of this and how can people be helped? Um, and even now, you know, as someone who's not a practitioner, I am, you know, I've always been an academic and not, not a practitioner. But that understanding that I have now, if I'd had it then, I could have helped him better. You know, I know, for example, that there's no point in doing what my mom did and trying to reason with him and say, John, you know, the TV isn't watching you and, you know, kind of argue back a little bit around these things. You can't change these, these beliefs that people have when they're in that situation. And I think I could have understood better and related to him better, but at the time I was a kid and I didn't have that knowledge. And this is what we're going to come into, what you're doing now. Um, so we're going to have that discussion now um, about what you're doing today. Yeah. Okay, so today my role is something that... Yeah, thanks so much, Helen. I just want, I didn't want to interrupt, but um, I just before we come up with that question about what you're doing right now, because the helplessness, I think, or being helpful or feeling unhelpful, that comes with like emotions, like, you know, feeling guilty, feeling, you know, uh, responsible, or just feeling a bit down, or just feeling a bit frustrated or angry sometimes, because I go through those emotions. I'm like, I'm just thinking that for the listeners, how did you, did you experience and how did you manage that? Like, what did you do with that? Because you're trying to help people, you're trying to help your uncle, help your family, and then you can't because it's it, the damage has already been done. That's the way I look at my family. Yeah, how yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure I ever did fully manage it, really. Um, I guess I went off to university and I moved out of home and it sort of wasn't in my world as much anymore. I still spoke to my mum every day, we still do. So I knew what was going on and, you know, that, I mean, she, she gave a large part of her life to, to looking after him. Um, I, I can't overstate the amount of time and effort and energy and pain that she went through. Um, she looked after him every day and after my grandma died and he was on his own, um, he would call her sometimes 20 times a day. You know, he'd be on the phone first thing on the morning, Pat, where's me fags? And, you know, she, she looked after his money and everything and she had to go and do all his shopping. Um, and his key focus was, you know, where are the cigarettes? <laughs> Is there enough money for all of them? Um, but, yeah, she, she fought the system sometimes to get him into hospital. Um, there was one point when he, he wouldn't let her in the house after my grandma had died for about six months, which was very unusual because normally he wanted her there all the time. But he got in such a state and he, he destroyed the house, you know, put holes in the walls and all sorts. And he nearly lost the house. Um, she fought tooth and nail for him. Um, she, she was there for him every single day of his life. She didn't have holidays. Um, so I felt bad. I felt guilty. I felt, you know, that I didn't do enough and I didn't know what to do. I just couldn't deal with it a lot of the time. Um, and she just did. She just kept kept going with it. Um, she, she always did right until the very end. Um, so I, I don't know what I did with the emotions. I think they're all bottled up to a point. I had a lot of dreams about him, you know, um, 
it, when he was still alive and had gone off to university, but also after he died. So I think it kind of came out there. Um, and even now, occasionally, I, I have a dream about him. Um, I'm not sure I've fully worked it all through or ever will, because I guess I always regret that I didn't handle it in the way that if I could go back, I would do it differently. But you have, have to remember, you know, I was a child and it's easy to be very self-critical, but um, I'm looking at it through the lens of an adult and through, through the lens of someone who's a mother now. And, you know, I can now understand why my grandma wouldn't leave. He was her son, you know, and she couldn't. Um, at the time, I wanted her safe. I wanted the violence out of our lives. Um, and she, you know, to me was the person who was, was blocking that and I couldn't understand it. And of course now I do. So th there's a lot to kind of process. Um, but yeah, it's just, it is what it is. And you've, you've got to kind of live with the past in some way. She feels, I mean, if she, um, it feels like she's a fascinating character and, and a person as a human being to go through an intense experience to, and as your words, you know, to be there till the end. Yeah. To, to, to be, you know, on that equal footing, like going toe to toe with, with him and being yeah. there. I think it, it, it shows the, like the strength of this person, this human being. And we need to learn from this person. They need to help us, you know, like how, because we need to look after people like them because, you know, it has an impact because they're human beings like this. They're not, they're not robots, they're not machines. So we need yeah. to learn from their lives too. Like it's equally important. Yeah, I'm, I'm in awe of my mom actually because um, she's 80 now and she's still a force of nature. You know, she looks after my dad now. He's a lot older than it. She's got this... Um, ability and almost compulsion to care for people I think and I wonder if it's because she grew up caring for my uncle John you know she had to look after him when when she was uh, 10 when he was born and she brought largely brought him up I think um but I I couldn't do what what she did you know it, it, every single day she was there for him she'd be up up he lived nearby you know she lived in the colliery of the village he loved, lived what we call up the village and um, he lived in the house he was born in till, till the day he died. And she was up there, you know, early on the morning, getting his shopping, cleaning out his fire, cleaning up his house, going to get the food he needed, um, making his meals, although often he wouldn't eat very much, um, dealing with all of his, you know, appointments in terms of medical professionals, making sure as far as she could that he was having the medication he needed. Um, and then she might come back home around lunchtime and then often she'd be back up there on an evening. And this was every single day. And, you know, this was until he died when he was, he might have been about 62, I think. And bear in mind, he was around 30 when all of this started. And she cared for him all that time. And especially after her mum died, which, you know, there was still a lot of years of his life after that. I have no idea how she did it. And she didn't get a lot of thanks for it because of this, the state he was often in. And he was incredibly demanding, incredibly. And he wanted her there all of the time. Um, and he wouldn't leave her alone. You know, he was constantly on the phone. When she, she'd come back down from his house, the phone would often ring straight away and it was him. So I don't know how someone copes with that. No, the only reason why I ask is because... Um, you know, the, the, the moments where I had to do when I was younger for family members, I know 
it just zaps you, just takes you out of your energy. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. You're arguing with the health professionals, trying to explain what's going on. Um, they're not seen as a priority or they're not they're in danger and you have to explain it to them. So yeah. it's that level of like, you know, you have to be determined. You have to be like so consistent. Yeah. Because this person's life is at risk. Like, and you know it because you're living with them and you see it. And just trying to communicate that, it just, I don't know how, I mean, I, I didn't do it every day, like, you know, because we did get support. But yeah. to be consistent, like, that's what I mean. I think she just sounds fascinating in that sense, like, she being, and we need to learn from that's yeah, <laughs> the neural pathway like <laughs> yeah I always say you know she's a better woman than me because I couldn't do it um I, I don't have that same drive in that area I guess I want to help people but I, I couldn't do the consistent doing all of the kind of practical stuff that she did um I could you know imagine myself you know being some kind of therapist and spending all my days talking to people and helping them in that way but the sheer work that was involved in you know looking after him when he got physically quite ill running his house and dealing with the you know really a constant barrage at times of sometimes demands even abuse that she she would get and it wasn't all the time you know he he retained elements of the lovely person that you know I knew from being a child he always was devoted to me and he never forgot birthdays however bad things got um so there was still that that was there but there was a lot of other stuff as well so do you think that this personal experience like or shared experience for yourself um it kind of adds to your um to your professional like you know choices about um, does it does it like enhance you as an academic uh, as a as a you know former lecturer um, or a psychologist like this person does it do you think it enhances it lifts it like to another level I think it does so one thing that I've noticed um, in teaching psychology is that when we teach students for example around mental health on a lot of psychology degrees and this was certainly true of my degree it was kind of very theoretical in the sense that we didn't see what this looks like okay mm. so I, I don't mean it was theoretical in the sense that it was all just theory um obviously you know we learned a lot about research and methods and we had clinical psychologists come and talk to us etc but on many psychology degrees that that is how it is and you you can't you just can't understand this unless you're up close and the nuance of it the the challenge of it what it really is like how it damages people's lives so one thing that you know has had a sort of profound impact on me in my psychology career is you you mentioned at the beginning when you did sort of my bio that you know I have this interest in interprofessional learning and it's something that we've done in the school of psychology at Sunderland and it's a big flagship of the faculty that we're in the faculty of, of health sciences and well-being um and it's something that's been done quite a lot in in the school of pharmacy for example which is where the, a lot of the leadership of it has come from. Um, and it's around getting students from different disciplines to work together in a kind of interprofessional environment and applying that to real healthcare situations. And another initiative that the faculty's got, which links to that is um, patient care and public involvement. So when we've done interprofessional learning, we have often had this, what we call PCPIs, patient care and public involvement come in. And so the university's got a, a whole pool of, of people who have experienced 
various kinds of, of illness and often mental illness. And they come in and talk to the students about their experience of, of it. And watching the students have that experience is eye-opening and breathtaking to see the impact of it on some of them. And some of them have come out of it and it's changed their perspective. It's made them want to go and work with people with mental health issues. And what they get from that is an understanding of what is it really like? You know, what, what does it look like for this person? How does it impact their lives? Um, sometimes the devastating impact of it. And I honestly believe you cannot get that from a book um, or a lecture. And so I guess growing up, seeing that up so close, um, I, I do get that and I'll always get that. You can't kind of take that away. So I, I, I do kind of feel that it's, it's enhanced my understanding of, of the discipline in lots of ways in, in that real world context, which is what at Sunderland we, we've really focused on um, in a way that, you know, wouldn't be the case if, if I hadn't experienced that. So, and, and I think it's driven my empathy in some ways, you know, so I've run a module while I was in the School of Psychology on dark personalities. And a lot of it's about psychopaths. And usually people have no empathy for psychopaths, you know, but actually these people can't help the personality that they have. Their brains are different. They struggle to feel empathy. So for us to not feel any empathy for them, um, is kind of a strange thing, I think. So I do feel like it's it's enhanced my ability to understand, to look at things from a different perspective, to feel empathy, you know, around all kinds of aspects of psychology, even the aspects that many people find um, most difficult to empathise with. Yeah, I, I, I was just thinking when you said that, like, uh, you know, from the title of this podcast, you know, um, um, becoming a psychologist, you know, but actually it's also becoming a human being. It's like human, but actually understanding about empathy, like, yeah, but yeah. how do you then be a human? You have to become one. And then it's yeah. a human being in that sense. You can't do it without expressing uh, or developing this empathy or enhancing the, the empathy element. Yeah. I just think to myself, like, is it is it something that, um, like, it has to come through experience, isn't it? It can't just be taught to you. You need to experience sure. and develop. Exactly. And that's important from a you know higher education pedagogy perspective in disciplines like psychology and, and healthcare sciences, etc. You, you've got to see things up close, I think. You don't necessarily have to go through them yourself, mm. but you've got to have some, I think, real experience of them if you really want to understand them. And you really want to be able to understand the lived experience of people who are living with, with all sorts of different challenging things. So you know, you're academic director, and for in this role, like for um, edu for education partnerships, right? What how how is it as a psychologist that role? And what I suppose first of all, what does that do for the for the listeners? Like, might be useful. What is this new role? And then the second part would be. How do you think being a psychologist enabled you to um, to do this role? Okay, so I'll say a little bit about what the role is because it's a role that's very new for Sunderland. They've not had this role before, um, and it's a role that exists in some of the universities in in some shape or form. But it's a role that ten years probably wouldn't have existed, you know, and I think that's important when we think about graduate employability, they're often preparing them for jobs that don't exist yet, and we don't know what they'll be. Uh, so I certainly couldn't have imagined myself doing this role because um, it didn't exist. 
um, you know, say when I was at university or even first an academic. So what is it then? Um, so at the University of Sunderland, um, people think of universities as rooted in the place where they are, you know, so University of Sunderland, we think of that as being in Sunderland, and we know that the University of Sunderland recruits very well locally. Um, a lot of our students are from the local region, so it's deeply rooted in that local area. But most universities these days are, you know, describe themselves as global universities, I would say, and they have branch campuses in different parts of the world. So University of Sunderland has a campus in London and it has a campus in Hong Kong as well. But as well as that, um, the international reach goes well beyond that. So Sunderland um, has a huge amount of what we call transnational education. Um, a really huge amount and more than many of the people working at Sunderland might even realise, I think. So transnational students are students who are studying University of Sunderland programmes in their home countries, or sometimes even as international students, um, you know, perhaps from another country, let's say studying one of our programmes in Hong Kong. So it's as complex as that, you know, there can be an international student studying with one of our partners. So the University of Sunderland has um, many, many international partnerships um, with colleges and universities across the world who deliver our programmes. So um, a few examples are Hong Kong, uh, Malaysia, Greece, Cyprus, uh, Thailand, uh, Botswana, so countries all, all over the world. And so um, these are what we call partner institutions, often, you know, really well regarded, um, highly renowned institutions, well established in their own countries are delivering University of Sunderland awards. And that, you know, increases access to education in the home country, sometimes where um, supply is outstripping demand in some cases. Um, so uh, universities rooted in these countries are often offering uh, UK awards, for example. So transnational students, believe it or not, are approaching around a third of our student body at Sunderland. So they're that significant and they are University of Sunderland students. Uh, and that's really important for me, you know, that sort of sense of belonging, et cetera. Um, as well as that, we have partnerships in the UK um, with UK colleges. Um, we have a partnership with Dance City in Newcastle. Um, we have a partnership with the Northern Academy for Music Education, um, delivering music programmes around modern music industries, etc. Um, so we've got, you know, a, a huge number of partnerships. And when you look at how big they are in terms of, of our provision, it's really very significant. So what this role is about, it's about really the, the kind of leadership and oversight of those educational partnerships, really in terms of the student experience. So it's very much focused on that student experience side of it and student outcomes, you know, so making sure that students studying at our partners are, are doing well and, and looking at the data around that. And it's also around working with the partners and the, the development of a relationship with a partner. Um, so that, that's really what the role is. It can be lots of different things, you know, I'm going to be working on lots of different projects. Um, around sort of enhancing the student experience and relationships with partners, potentially doing some research around transnational education, because there isn't, a, there isn't by any means as much of that as there is on international students who come to the UK, for example, or um, higher education more broadly. Um, so, so that in a nutshell is, is what it is, but it's quite wide ranging. Um, so in terms of how psychology is useful for that, 
um, it is the role is academic director. So I think it's important that I've got an academic background and I've done a lot in terms of things like quality and program development and leading pedagogical projects. So it'll be partly about applying a lot of that to the, let's say the transnational context, for example. Um, I think as well, you know, this is ultimately a role that's about relationships. It's about the University of Sunderland's relationships with our value partners overseas and in the UK. It's about our relationships with our transnational students and how we foster a sense of belonging with those students and our students studying, you know, let's say with, with UK partners. Um, it's very much about relationships in the university because transnational education cross cuts everything, you know, all of the faculties, all of the five faculties at Sunderland have some transnational provision. Um, it cross cuts a lot of the services, you know, that they, they will interact with the transnational provision um, as they'll interact with the, the on campus provision. So in many ways, the whole thing is about relationships. So having that understanding of people, of relationships, of psychology, um, of, you know, the cross, the, how different cultural contexts affects relationships, you know, what I would call intercultural competency and having an understanding of that is really important. So I feel like, um, you know, this role doesn't have to be done by a psychologist by any means, but I do feel that the kind of background I have, not just in higher education leadership, but also the understanding of people and relationships is really valuable for this. Yeah, I think it's like, I was just going to say like, that's, that's like, it seems like a very like, you know, exciting time and also like a very important role in terms of like, um, not just for like the university, but also higher education in the industry and helping people to further develop because education doesn't stop like, you know, and our models, they're not going to evolve over time. Um, yeah. And I'm just thinking about the, you know, like for the listeners here, like they've been thinking, here's this psychologist has ended up in not in a, you know, like sitting in a hospital, what, what most people think when they first start off, right? We have to yeah. counsel. But actually, psychology is so broad, it's transferable. It is. Um, we talk about it all the time. And here's, you know, a real life example, like 22, 22 um, example of like a psychologist in this role um, because they they have an understanding of the dimensions of people. Yeah, um, sure. Do you sure. think like, yes, yeah, so what do you think about that? About the, I uh, think it's, it's a really important point about psychology because I think a lot of undergraduates go into psychology thinking I'm going to be a psychologist, as I did. You know, I went in thinking I'll be a clinical psychologist. That's, that's the obvious path. Um, and actually, I think it's only about you know, I, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but it's probably only about 19% of graduates nationally. That's a figure I've heard. It's not very high. You actually go on to be professional psychologists. And when you look at the range of things that psychology graduates do, it's immense, you know, and it's because psychology is relevant to everything. Um, and so, you know, the, the demand for psychology, I think, will increase. I think partly as a result of what we're seeing in terms of, you know, a, a kind of a almost epidemic of mental health issues, probably exacerbated by recent events like the COVID pandemic. So there'll be a need for professional psychologists. But as well, you know, you, you can be a counsellor or a therapist rather than a, a psychologist and a psychology degree is often really good preparation for that. You know, there are a whole range of, of therapeutic professions 
Um, and it's worth any psychology student who's interested in this looking into that. Um, you know, I was at an event organized by University of Sunderland the other day, which um, was, was around compulsive sexual behavior and chemsex. And uh, we got in someone who's a, a psychotherapist who's highly experienced in that area to deliver CPD. Um, and, you know, he's a, a sort of sex and relationship therapist. And uh, there's someone in the School of Psychology from a counseling background who, who also does that. So there's a, when it comes to therapy, it's not just clinical psychology. There's a massive range of things and a lot of specialisms within it. And I'm not an expert on, on counselling and, and therapy, but um, I know that psychology is very relevant to it and that the demand for it will grow and that the niches involved in that are probably growing. But even beyond that sort of context, um, psychology is relevant to everything. You know, we see people go on to work in uh, HR and marketing, public relations, um, all sorts of things. And that understanding of people is crucial, you know, and in terms of a leadership role, for example, and my role is, is a leadership role. Psychology is invaluable to that, you know, really kind of understanding people, understanding personality. Any psychology degree gives you a, an understanding of personality. And, you know, we hear a lot about leadership models and leadership styles. And yes, that's important. But actually what I've learned, and this is partly through psychology, but through personal experience is that the way you lead and manage people, it partly depends on the person. You've got to be flexible. You've got to understand them and their needs, and they'll be very different. Um, so applying a kind of blanket, this is how I'm going to lead and manage. For me, that that hasn't worked. It's had to be a bit more nuanced than that. The universe wouldn't exist if we are not in it. <laughs> um, yeah. And if we are in it, right, then we have to understand who we are. Yeah. Isn't it? And that's what that's what it is. And we have to, in order to survive, even from an evolution perspective, right? Yeah. You must work with people. Otherwise, we work in isolation. Absolutely. Part, we just we just die. It's like think about COVID vaccination. Yeah. If, if the intelligent people didn't get together and come up with this formula, to this thing would have killed us. Like we would yeah. be here. So I I get the concept of partnerships, like working with people. Yeah. We have to, you know, how, and when, how do we work with them effectively without, you know, killing them? Because, <laughs> you know, we have that in the world also. Like, so I think that like, understanding this process and becoming a psychologist, just thinking about like, you know, people doing psychology degrees, that's the difference they can make. It is. And in, in this role, I will be applying psychology and I will be applying what I know about it to essentially relationships, to project management um to all sorts of things um and you know that's relevant in so many contexts that psychology graduates might go into and for me i think once once you're a psychologist you're always a psychologist and you always look at it through a psychology lens so one thing that always sticks with me from my experience at university is i really enjoyed you know learning social psychology um i enjoyed learning about um, how people interact and how they behave in groups and why they do that and things like stereotyping etc and why we do that and they the benefits of it as well as, as the downside mm. but I also remember when we left the lecture theatre going and standing at the bus stop and seeing people who'd been in that lecture sometimes doing the very things that we just learned about and it was almost like that was something they left in the classroom and they weren't seeing that actually this applies to them as well 
Um, and so reflecting on that in the context of your own behavior, um, I think is really important. And I now can't stop doing that, I suppose. Um, you know, I, I can't stop seeing things through a psychological lens and an evolutionary psychological lens as well. Um, I've found has been really beneficial to me, not just in my in my job, but in my life in general. Yeah, I just I, I think that's so so um, you know puts a smile on my face, like because I, I, there's similar behaviours that I did engaged in, and I see others doing it. That actually, yeah, we are. There's this concept around: are we just um, you know uh, mirrors of each other? In that yeah, and um, we do self reflection, but yeah. I think becoming becoming who you are isn't it it's part of that process absolutely it is yeah yeah so that brings us to, to the end of like the interview thank you so much for you know your time and becoming um becoming um a fascinating guest or you know i think that's interesting becoming that word and that concept um so now what would happen is um i passed over the microphone over to you uh, we might do a podcast um, in the future, perhaps in, um, one day, um, to see how you're getting on, yeah. um, and, and, and informing us of your, of your, of what you've learned and sharing us your journey. But um, what I do here is I hand over the microphone to the guest, and they say a few words, and then when you stop talking, um, I I start, stop recording. Thank okay. you again, Helen, once more. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, so um, I was just going to end by sort of saying, you know, a few kind of things to kind of think about for people who might be starting out in psychology um, and kind of wondering where that will lead or how they'll, or even how they'll get to where they want to get. So these are a few things that I've sort of learned along the way um, that have become important to me. And I think one thing is to think about your future self. Now, obviously, you won't know what that would look like when I was 15. I couldn't have imagined. I had ideas about how my life would turn out. I could not have predicted um, the life that I have. And what may seem difficult then, in 10, 20 years time, you will look at very differently, I think. So I remember when I, I finished at university, I did really well academically, but I had zero confidence. I literally couldn't stand up in front of an audience. I was petrified of presentations. The idea that I would ever stand up in a lecture theatre of 200 people and not bat an eyelid and feel completely comfortable with that, I would literally not have believed. You know, I had an absolute block about this and quite severe social anxiety around things like that. Um, so I think although you may not see a way to get past some issues that you might sort of face in the short term, keep that bigger picture in mind. Remember that, you know, at some point in the future, that will be a long way in the past and you will have become someone that you don't recognize um, because we all develop and grow. I think confidence is important and it's okay to accept that you don't have it sometimes because I certainly didn't have it and I've never have imagined gaining any confidence. Um, but I think what you have to do is it's that old idea of fake it till you make it. You have to pretend a little bit. And if you pretend you're confident, then eventually you will become confident. Um, at least that, that's my experience of it. Um, and I think the final thing is about being reflective, which is something that we've touched on a little bit. So if you want to develop in your career, um, 
that is one of the most important things. One, one other important thing is saying yes to opportunities. And that's something I've always done. And that's probably how I've ended up in a place I wouldn't have predicted to some extent. Um, don't say yes to everything. It's got to be manageable. But, you know, when good opportunities come, even if it means a bit more work, even if it's something you think you can't do, have a go, become the person who does the job is, my, is the way that I think about it. I've often taken on things in my career. When I was a senior lecturer, for example, I thought, not sure I know how to do that, but I want to do it. And therefore I'm going to have a go and I will become the person who does that job. I will learn to do it. I'll gain the knowledge I need. I'll gain the skills and I'll become it. And I have you know, done that several times, I think. But I think that taking opportunities is important, but being reflective, you know, be honest with yourself. Um, think about when you take on a role or you do a job or you do a lecture, for example, you know, if you go on to be an academic, what went well and what didn't and why and how can I change that? How well do I really think I did? Um, if you go into leadership and management, you've got to reflect on how you do with that all of the time. You've got to constantly evaluate. It's not about being really self-critical, you know, that's defeating, but being honest about how you've done and where you can do better watching other people, learning from other people, um, having mentors, you know, who are good role models to you, those sorts of things. I've often watched people in leadership roles and watch what they do well and maybe what they don't do so well and thought, how can I adapt that for me and make that work in, in a way that's authentic to me? So, yeah, I think that that development across a career, uh, it never ends, you know, um, it, it, that's something that, is continuous throughout your career I think but I think it's that reflection and evaluation always without going down the road of being incredibly self-critical and beating yourself up that's really important so yeah those are the things that stick out for me available on all podcast platforms this is the psychology cast the podcast that interviews unique individuals on why they do what they do